This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Helen Shulman, author of A Day at the Beach, P.S., The Revisionist, Not a Free Show, Out of Time, and This Beautiful Life. She also writes screenplays and is the fiction coordinator and a professor of fiction at the New School in New York. Her novel, This Beautiful Life, was a New York Times notable book and centers on the Bergamot family, who find themselves at the center of a scandal when 15-year-old Jake receives and forwards a sexually explicit video from an 8th grader who has designs on him. The video goes viral within minutes, and the Bergamot's seemingly perfect upscale life in Manhattan starts to unravel as they suffer the consequences of Jake's push of a computer button. Focusing on issues of privacy, feminism, parenthood, sexuality, morality, and technology, the novel displays what lies beneath the surface of this family of four. Shulman begins the interview discussing the impetus for the story. You know, I'm not an autobiographical writer. I was definitely writing about things I was thinking about, and there were a lot of things I was thinking about at that time. I know I'm a New Yorker, I uh, born and bred. Um, I lived through 9-11. I wote a book about 9-11. And for all the horror of 9-11, as a New Yorker, and I guess even as an American, I was so incredibly moved by the way we came together in New York after the attacks. It was just incredible, and there was so much bravery and not just, of course, the, you know, the first responders, but just everyone on the streets and people were so kind to each other. And then when I traveled in Europe that summer, people would hug me. And I just felt like we had this chance to renew ourselves. And then I felt that that was all squandered um, by the Bush administration and, and by us. Um, and so I was really interested in that post 9-11 uh, society pre-crash, um, 2008. You know, I live in Manhattan. Uh, I had a kid in private school. I, I was uh, suddenly um, seeing intense wealth in a way that I'd never seen in my life. We have a middle-class family. I was very interested in that, this sort of rush to greed and this, the crazy money that came through the city. And you know, now we see it everywhere. Everyone's talking about the 1%. But you know, for years, it was just sort of this crazy grab fest. And I was very interested in um, the sexualization of girls and women. Um, my daughter is now 20, but when she was little, I was really super shocked by how sexy her friends were dressed. Um, I remember the bat mitzvah year and how difficult it was for me to find her something pretty to wear that A, wasn't a fortune, and B, didn't make her look like you know, a prostitute, um, and but still wanted it to be, you know, fun and flirty and dancey, but not, you know, raunchy. And everywhere I looked, all I saw was kids being super sexualized. Um, and I guess I'm a 70s feminist. That's when I came of age. And I was really, really shocked when um, my kids went to school and how many women there, women who had every choice in the world, just didn't work. And a lot of them had gone to 
the best schools and were super trained and really smart and really creative. And there was just all this brain power that wasn't going anywhere but into the home, and which, of course, is, nothing's more important than the home. And I'm certainly not saying what women should do. Women should do whatever they want. But it was just interesting seeing these really high-powered women not have a position of power and how that worked. So I was thinking about that. And then finally, it was the internet. I mean, it was just such an earthquake in our lives. And um, just the idea of privacy and the lack of it and the lack of control. I mean, now it all seems ubiquitous. We're used to it. We see people filming rapes on their phones and putting it on Facebook. It's crazy. But in the beginning, um, I just remember hearing a couple of stories like on the sidewalk from other mothers and my jaw dropped open and and I thought, well, I've got my story because all of this plays into this beautiful life. So, yes, everything that you just mentioned is in the book. It's, you know, about this family of four and the son, Jake, who is a teenager, gets a sext from this younger girl. I believe she's in eighth grade, Daisy. And the book opens with sort of a description of the girl preparing and shooting this this sext and then sending it. It's actually via the computer and he forwards it without thinking. And that's sort of the, the inciting incident for the book and the family. So how did you distill all these things that you just explained to me into this moment and this story? Did it take a lot of background writing? There were a couple of things that came my way. I mean, one the first thing that actually happened was that somebody sent me, like I guess it's a meme, I don't know, a photo of a woman who was a bridesmaid at a wedding wearing a strapless dress, reaching up for the bouquet, and her boobs popped out. And it came into my inbox. And I just crumpled up into a ball. I was like, this is so humiliating and so embarrassing. And if it happened to you in the past, your girlfriend would like turn you around and say nobody saw it, and you would drink two drinks and forget that it ever happened. But instead... It went to millions of people, including me, who didn't even know her. Um, and I was so shocked by that. I, you know, it was that whole idea of how fast things travel and how heartless they are. I mean, in a way, it's a funny thing maybe, but it's really not. So that happened. And then uh, I had heard a story from a mother on the sidewalk who said, did you hear about this girl who took a video of herself and sent it to this boy. And I was like, what? You know, again, this is all back in the day at this point. Um, So I was really shocked by all of it. Um, But it just, it brought it all together. You know, there were some things, there were a couple of things that happened in my kid's school. And the school was trying to um, discipline some children for various reasons, some good reasons and some not so good. And the parents hired lawyers and then it got into the newspaper. And again, I was shocked. I was like, wow, the big guns are out instead of working on this as a school or a community or family is being played out in public. I mean, I know I sound like I come from Iowa, but I don't. I come from the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I've lived in New York City my entire life. But I 
had never seen things like this. It's just the power of these parents who were really, really, um, you know, at the top of their professions and also super wealthy. And the schools also, the way they fought back, nobody really thinking about what was best for the kids. Um, so it brought it all together. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Helen Shulman. There are different points of view in your book about culpability and Jake's culpability. And what happens is he gets this. He had had an incident with this girl that night at the party where she wanted to make out and and explore more than he wanted to. And he left and she sent him this thing, basically asserting herself, saying, I'm old enough for you. And he just saw it and he did have this moment of shock and he didn't know what to do and he just forwarded it. So... You're talking about these parents hiring lawyers and, you know, what you teach your kids. I mean, what were you thinking about culpability when you were writing this? There was a point where I had to do a lot of work because I wasn't sure how to, what tack to take. Should this be boys who are really exploiting a girl? Should this be a girl who was really, you know, a bad seed? Should... And then I just decided, no, I'm going to make them both innocents. Um, I think the girl is, you know, she's really been taught by her mother and her father and the culture around her that the way to get love is to be sexy and pretty. Um, and she really wants this boy. She's a very lonely girl. And he says, you're too young. So as you said, she's going to prove it. Um, I think he's a sweet boy. He's not ready for any of it. And it was a hot potato. He sent it to his best friend, and his best friend sent it to his brother and two other boys. And in two minutes, it was viral all around the country. And people were sending it back to him, not knowing that it started with him. I do see the kids as innocent. Um, And I think the parents were in a terrible spot. I mean, yeah. We often are in terrible spots. It's how we handle them. Well, I'm curious about that with the, with the parents because I felt like, so the parents are um, Liz and Richard. And Liz, I felt, took the tactic. She blamed Daisy. She was like, this girl should not be sending this. This is her fault. And Richard was more like, get your hair cut, get your act together. This is your fault. Can you talk about taking those positions and writing those characters? Yeah, I actually thought Liz was someone who really changes over the book. You know, Richard's a very, uh, he's a self-made man. He's a golden boy. And I think one of the things that he really loved about her and wanted to be married to her was that she kept him, she kept him good. She's always been kind of a moral, loving person. But when her kid is threatened, she loses all sight of anything but Mama Lion. And um, in a way, she makes things much worse for him. And her efforts to save him, she doesn't allow him to um, take responsibility for his actions and to forgive himself or ask for forgiveness. I think by the end of the book, that changes. I mean, she really goes first 180 and then maybe not quite 360, but hopefully close to it. For Richard, it's something else. I think he's really, as I said, he's a self-made man. He comes from this blue-collar background. He's the first 
kid and his family to go to college. He's, you know, he's Superman. He's very handsome. He's very talented. Um, but he has a strong work ethic, and he got it from his parents and an idea of what should be honorable. And to him, Jake has been dishonorable. It's surprising because, again, he's been the pragmatist. He's really struck by Daisy's innocence and her desire for love, and it, it awakens questions within him about his own feelings about love and what kind of love he's actually had. There's ripple effects for everyone from this incident. But one of the things that was interesting to me is that Jake had this crush on this girl, Audrey, that was in school, but she was kind of an untouchable for him. He couldn't have gotten her, I don't think. But after this incident happened, and everyone in the school knows, this other girl approached him. I think her name was Rachel. And he was with her. They went out in the woods. She gave him a blowjob. And he was pretty violent with her. Do you think he learned something? Or was it sort of the blame of the victim that his parents at first that his mom put on him that caused him to act like this? Or was this just his confusion acting out? I think, you know, each... When I... I teach fiction, right? I, I run the... Um, and the fiction uh, part of the MFA program at the New School. And I, a lot of times I'll say to my students, like, where does the day take you? And so each character, the day takes them somewhere else. They're not the same in the middle of the book that they are at the beginning, and they're not the same at the end. This is profound, irrevocable transformation on their lives, um, this one incident. Um, and I think what happens to Jake is, he longs for Audrey. He loves Audrey. Um, she rejects him. She's disgusted by his behavior. And so many people have told him he's a monster. He decides, I'm a monster. R Rachel is yet another kid who she's, she's turned on by this whole thing. You know, she's, she's just probably the emptiest person in the whole book. Um, she's very beautiful, and she's she's turned on by the whole thing. And it's funny because, you know, as I was saying, I thought that in the beginning uh, Liz, the mom, is ethical, but really I think the moral center of the book is Audrey. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Helen Shulman. So one of the things that I thought was interesting about Liz, and we, you were talking about sort of her trajectory through the book and making a turn for 360 and then maybe back some a little bit more, was that her first instinct was to blame the girl, but she was the mother of a boy and the mother of a girl. And so her oldest, I guess she was experiencing the teenage angst of a boy first, but I'm wondering about that psychology of her blaming Daisy, but then, especially as the book moved on, seeing those societal pressures and influence on girls playing out in her own daughter. Well, that's really, honestly, that's where she fails. Um, because in the process of all this trouble with Jake, they just completely ignore Coco. Um, which, again, if you live long enough and you see families where a kid's in crisis, Often it takes everything the parents have to do to deal with the one in crisis. And Coco is just 
left on her own, and she's not protected. Um, and Liz really gets depressed. I mean, I think she, she really suffers from sort of fear of going outside and seeing the other mothers, and she has this sort of Hester Prynne quality, and, you know, she feels like she's got a scarlet letter on her, and she just wants to escape. And so she shunts off her job of even just picking the kid up and taking her to school, and the child suffers. And I think when she sees that so starkly, that's when she realizes she has to change her life and she has to grow up and she's got to change as a mother. Well, it's interesting because you wrote this book a while ago, but in the book it says Coco is the class of 2016. Mm -hmm. And you do have a flash forward at the end of the book, but what do you think Coco is doing now and maybe the rest of the family since this is the year of her high school graduation? I have no idea. I love for readers to go ahead in their head. You know, I love when something lives on in mine that I've seen and that I constantly think back about. I mean, it's funny, when I was driving over here, for some reason I was thinking about The Sopranos, and I was just going back to the character in The Sopranos, Adriana, and thinking about her. And you know how many years it's been since I've seen that? But I just love if it lives on. But that's really the fun of the reader or the viewer. It's not the writer at that point. Is that why you chose the flash forward at the end? At the very end, we got sort of a vision of the future for these characters. That all actually happened sort of editorially in a way. I, um, In fact, you would ask me to read a little piece of it, and I was going to read what was initially the ending but was also page four for about two years of my writing the book. Um, so I really didn't know where to go. You know, I kind of ended it for a while just um, with devastation. And then too many readers felt like they needed more. Um, so I went forward. And I think that's when Daisy really became a real person for me um, because the book, she was always, she was threaded throughout it, but she never really got her own section till what's now the final section, which is from her point of view. You never fully describe the incident with Daisy. There's innuendo, there's props we know about. Can you talk about that decision? I think it's pretty clear what happened with Daisy. Um, but it's not a play-by-play. -play. No. It's, it's more... Actually, uh, I, I love my agent so much. Um, he's so great, and I just love him. But he's very proper in a way, and he's from the South, and um, I'm from New York, and I'm just profane and out there. And I, when I first showed him that scene, he said, please, for me, can you take out a couple of these words? And I did. You know, he just thought it was too much to see so early with such a young girl in a book. I think you know what happened with her and what she did. Can you read a passage from a writer that influenced you? Oh, yeah. So I'm a big John Cheever fan, um, and I read him early in my career of writing stories. Um, but I return to him again and again when I'm low. You know, there are times when I just lose heart, honestly. Um, I'm teaching too much, and... I'm not writing enough, and I'm not reading enough, and whatever. Life is whatever, and I think, 
you know, what is this all about? And and then often I will go back to books that I love. And one of the stories that I love is Goodbye, My Brother. And I'm just going to read you the last paragraph of it. Um, it's a story about a family uh, vacation, of uh, sort of a waspy family of lost money. They have a, a house um, it could be Maine, it could be Fisher's Island, it's, you know, an enclave of old wealth. The house is falling apart. The adult children meet once a year with their mother um, for a week or two's vacation, and they have one brother who um, has stayed away from the family, and he comes to visit, and all he can see is uh, what's wrong with everything. And it's like contagious poison, uh, he's not wrong, and it, but it, the narrator becomes infected and then becomes so negative himself that uh, he destroys whatever is lovely in his own life, and the only way um, he has to make a choice, and his choice is to purge his brother from his life. But anyway, this is the last graph. Oh, what can you do with a man like that? What can you do? How can you dissuade his eye in a crowd from seeking out the cheek with acne, the infirm hand? How can you teach him to respond to the inestimable greatness of the race, the harsh surface beauty of life? How can you put his finger for him on the obdurate truths before which fear and horror are powerless? The sea that morning was iridescent and dark. My wife and my sister were swimming. Diana and Helen, and I saw their uncovered heads black and gold in the dark water. I saw them come out, and I saw that they were naked, unshy, beautiful, and full of grace, and I watched the naked women walk out of the sea. Do you want to say anything else about why you chose that? Well, for me, it's so moving. I think it's so incredibly beautiful and lyrical and gorgeously written, but it's about choosing to see beauty. It's about not squandering the beauty of life, no matter how hard it can become. And um, I just love it. It renews hope for me. Um, yeah, I mean, on a more personal note, I just have, you know, one of my parents is very, very, um, very dark and always finds fault and so there's the idea that you can actually kind of rest that out of your head and see beauty in the world um, is personally powerful. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Helen Shulman. Can you read something you wrote? It could be something that was tricky, something that changed a lot from the first draft. Well, it was with that little passage we were talking about, or I was talking about before, was that I have this uh, little paragraph, um, and it originally was the, originally it was page four of my novel um, for a few years of writing the novel, and then for a while it was the ending, uh, except that everybody important to me said it wasn't satisfying as an ending, so then I wrote that extra um, little chapter we talked about, but I'm going to read that paragraph to you. After grad school, when Richard was working at the World Bank and they were still a young couple, a young couple with a child, 
They would lie at night in the fold-out bed in the living room of their little place in Adams Morgan, above that Senegalese restaurant, what was its name again, and refer to their home privately in whispers so as not to jinx themselves as Happy House. The aroma of Yasa or Roulet de la Casamance, the restaurant's signature offering, barbecued chicken in a rich onion and lemon sauce, wafted nightly throughout their living room. Jake lay safely ensconced in his crib in the tiny bedroom down the hall. In the summer, that scent was as delicious and as lightly encompassing as the cool sheets that skimmed their bodies. Night after night, she and Richard made love. Standing at Jake's bedside now, Liz could smell the dish if she concentrated hard enough. When had she last tasted it? It was so good. Do you want to say anything else about that? No, I just want to say I never lived in Adams Morgan. I've never eaten in a Senegalese restaurant. I don't eat chicken. <laughs> um, my husband didn't work at the World Bank. But certainly there are moments in life when you're with a young child and someone you love where you just pinch yourself with how lucky you feel. Where do you write? Well, that's a funny question. So I live in Manhattan in a small apartment. And um, for years, we had a little room in the back that had the laundry and my desk. But then my children started to kill each other, and we turned it into a bedroom for my daughter. It is seriously the size of your desk. Poor daughter. I write on the couch. I don't have a desk. My husband is also a writer, and for years he... um, Years and years and years, he was a magazine editor, and he had an office. But then two years ago, he stopped going into the office. So then we had a fight over the corner of the couch. And sometimes in the beginning of that period, I would say, you have to get out of this house. And he would go sit and write in the car. But that is life in New York City. (laughs) What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I work a lot. So I am often teaching or writing things for, you know, magazines or newspapers. Um, I teach a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, So I'm super busy. Uh, But one thing I really love to do is I love to do yoga and I love to walk. And um, so pretty much every morning that I can, I walk across the park, Central Park, to my exercise studio, and I take a class of something or other, and I walk back. And by the time I'm back, I'm ready to, to rock. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband, Bruce. Um, he is an editor, a magazine editor, and um, we both show each other our work. Um, I probably take more advantage of him than he does of me. Um, but I, I can work on a book for a couple of years without showing anything to anybody. And then I show it to him. And the first thing I say is lie to me because I just can't take it in the beginning. I really just too vulnerable. And then after he's given me some notes and I keep working, I'll go back and say, okay, give me everything you have. And then once I get past the gauntlet of him, I go to my agent, Sloan Harris, who I love, and he is the toughest of the tough. And if I can get something back past him, I feel like I'm done. And after that, it's all gravy. 
How have you dealt with rejection? It hurts. I mean, especially when you're a young writer, it's so much of it, and um, it's so hard. Um, my book, A Day at the Beach, probably was rejected by 27 editors. It got fantastic reviews and did really well, but I couldn't seem to get it past people. Um, and that was after you know some real career success, so I was shocked. I also still to this day think it's the best thing I've ever written. Um, and I just remember thinking, if I can't do this, what can I do? I mean, this is the best that I can do. Uh, so it was hard, you know. A lot of things in life are hard. You just have to swim through them and keep going. And what is your favorite word? You know, I don't know if I have a favorite anything, but I really quite like the word radiant. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Helen Shulman. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The First Draft music is produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.